The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Turn to Romans chapter 11. If you look at 11, starting at verse 24, this is God's holy and inspired word. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted in to their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be ignorant of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation." That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. So we come to this this text and this verse 26, this little phrase. So all Israel will be saved. And I have to say that, that throughout the centuries, That little phrase, so all Israel will be saved, (laughs) that statement, all Israel has, let's just say it's garnered a lot of attention, right? I mean, it's really sort of a massive statement, don't you think? And so all Israel will be saved. But as we come to the text, uh, we're going to ask questions that have been asked of this text for centuries, uh, like, who's all Israel? It's, it's not as if everybody has the same answer to that question. And then there's the question of, well, how will they be saved? Right? That's a good question. And then, when will they be saved? So all of those are really, really pertinent questions as it comes to this phrase, so all Israel will be saved. So let me just let me just cover verse 25. And uh, the first thing that we have to notice is that verse 25 is uh, in a sense uh, a supporting statement of what Paul says at the second part of verse 24. So Paul has been talking about this olive tree and natural olive branches that is Jewish people have been cut off and, um, and, and in a sense unnatural branches have been, cut, uh, have been grafted in. So Gentiles have been grafted in to an olive tree that has roots that is um, the, uh, we call it the Christ-centered Abrahamic promises. Okay? And so you've got 
people that, in a sense, don't have an earthly claim on being a part of that olive tree, they've been grafted in. And so then Paul's major concern is that those that have been grafted in wouldn't start looking down on those who have been cut off. And so then Paul gives some pretty strict warnings regarding pride and, and the importance of actually not looking down on those who have been cut off because he turns around and he says, you can be cut off too. And God, by the way, can then graft in those other olive branches, the natural olive branches. It's not a problem for him. And so you have to to not be conceited, but fear, right? And so there, uh, we talked all about this a number of weeks ago. And so when Paul gets to verse 25, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant or uninformed brethren of this mystery. So just as he says, so how much more, right, will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own tree? Paul turns around and he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about something. That something, is he's going to call it a mystery. Now when Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant brethren, I told myself I wouldn't use this illustration, but so I was, uh, I was taking a class in, uh, in New Orleans one time, and I had a teacher that was from Mississippi, and he said, Southern Baptist preachers loved it when Paul said, I don't want you ignorant brethren. (laughs) And that it often served as a farewell sermon. (laughs) But let me just say that that commas are important. (laughs) So Paul uses this phrase, uses it five other times, all right? I don't want you to be uninformed brethren. When, when he's about to introduce something that he believes is incredibly important. And so what I want Paul's words to the Romans to do for us right now is to make us realize Paul is about to say something of, of immense importance. When he says, I don't want you ignorant, the idea is I don't want you uninformed. I don't want you I don't want you willfully misinformed, but I also don't want you to ignore or to disregard what this great mystery is. And so Paul drives this home, gets their attention, and I don't want you to be ignorant brethren of this mystery. Now, mystery is is one of those words that for us... um, we're not typically in tune with the Bible use of mystery. We think of mystery as a whodunit. We think of mystery as sort of a a genre of, of, of story. In the Bible, mystery has nothing to do with puzzles or whodunits. In the Bible, mystery is the idea that there was something... It was there, but it was hidden, but now it's revealed. All right, so that ends up being the significance of a mystery, is that it's there, 
but it's hidden. It's, it's not easily seen. And so then what happens is God takes that which is hidden and then he reveals it. So in the era of the new covenant, the era in which we live, mysteries are revealed. That is, mysteries are supposed to be known. So in the New Testament, a mystery is not something that we're still in the dark about. A mystery is something that has now been revealed. And so Paul uses this phrase, mystery, by the way, over 20 times in his writings. Paul uses mystery to identify something that was in God's purpose, hidden in an embedded way, but now with the advent of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit, it is now revealed. Now, that idea of embedded, hidden, and then revealed is really clear in the way that Paul uses mystery at the very end of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 16 and verse 25. Paul says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, now notice, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith. And so right there, by the way, in those two verses, you see all the components of mystery, right? So there was a mystery that had been kept secret for long past. But where was that mystery contained? <laughs> In the scriptures of the prophets. Actually, if you just, if, by the way, here's a little hint. If I ask a question, just look at your Bible. The answer is probably right there, okay? So, Where was the mystery hidden? It was hidden in the scriptures of the prophets. Where has it been now manifested? It's been manifested through by the scriptures of the prophets, and now it's been made known to all the nations. So you had the mystery, which in this case is the gospel going to all the nations through Christ, and you had it embedded in the Old Testament. That's where it was concealed, but now it has been manifested. All right, so Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. And before he tells us what the mystery is, he tells us why he doesn't want us to be ignorant of the mystery. So that you be not wise, literally, to yourselves. Or the way the NAS does it, you not be wise in your own estimation. So understand this, that the reason that Paul actually does not want us to be ignorant of the mystery is so that we will not be wise in ourselves. That's interesting, don't you think? Well, the reality is, is that too often we rely on our own wisdom even as it pertains to the things of God. We rely on our own insight, our own understanding. We rely on our own own thoughts 
And of course, what ends up happening is that too often as we lean on our own wisdom and understanding to figure out the plan of God or the things of God is that then we become um, we become puffed up with the fact that, hey, I'm pretty smart, I figured this out. Okay. Now, if it's a mystery that has to be revealed, guess what you're not smart enough to do? You're not smart enough to figure it out. If it has to be revealed, it's not a puzzle to be unraveled by our little silly putty brains. It's actually something that God has to take the initiative to manifest, to make known. You understand that's the way it is with with God's truth anyway. Right? I mean, how many people, all you got to do is look on the internet How many people are wise in their own estimation, right? I mean, (laughs) Daniel and I joke about this all the time. There are are pastors that are like in their like 30s that that want to pontificate all of this massive wisdom that they've gained in their three decades of life. And they want to share it with all, all other pastors, but they do it in a way as if they really have come up with some incredible insight, okay? And I never reply back on their posts, but I feel like replying back. But then I'd have to confess to God, (laughs) okay? Because what I want to say is, okay, so you're not as smart as you think you are. You're not nearly as wise as you think you are. And you are far from experienced, right? And so, but here's the thing. What is the the bane of young men is still a problem that lurks in all of our hearts, okay? And so when you realize that God's truth has to be revealed, then you begin to realize that it doesn't depend upon your wisdom, your insight, or your specialty, right? So human pride ends up then being an enemy to both the wisdom and the grace of God, so human pride actually is, is an enemy um, to God's wisdom. So what does God do? God actually will use his wisdom to nullify our wisdom. What does grace do? Well, grace actually, is, is grace and, uh, and pride compatible? It's not compatible at all, right? So if you're a sinner saved by grace, born again by, by God's spirit, um, drawn by grace, saved by grace, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. If you actually believe that, there's no room for pride. None. And so here's Paul and he's warning again the Gentiles, be careful that you're not wise in your own estimation. And I think that's just a, perennial lesson for us. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Not just in terms of the mysteries of God, but just in terms even of the mysteries of life. We are typically so arrogant when we judge other people, thinking that we actually have seen the motives of their heart. There's no room for it. 
among God's people who have been saved by grace. And so Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery because if you're ignorant of this mystery, you run the risk of being wise in your own estimation. And so Paul is very clear. Self-centered wisdom actually blinds us uh, and pride blinds us to the truth. And so now he comes to the content of the mystery. There's three parts to it. The first is this. A partial hardening has come to Israel. Now Paul's already said that. Back in the early part of chapter 11, Paul's already talked about it. But, but the mystery... Here's, here's the mystery. So, right, so, so there, but hidden. And here's, here's the mystery, is that the expectation was that Jewish salvation would then lead to Gentile salvation. All right? That was, that was the idea, um, that God was going to come and restore captive Israel, and as he does, then the, the na- kings and nations would then stream to Zion to get truth. And so the idea was, is that, is that God would, would save Israel, and then as a result of saving Israel, would turn around and save the nations, but it, it, kind of in a subservient sort of way. Now, here's part of the mystery. It's not the salvation of Israel that leads to the salvation of the Gentiles. It's the salvation of the Gentiles that leads to the salvation of Israel. Okay? Now, <laughs> you could have been a Jewish person living in Paul's day, and you hear that, and you'd have been like, what? Paul, are you, are you, out, are you out of your Israelite gourd? What, what are you talking about? How in the world? And so Paul's answer is, look, there's a partial hardening. That partial hardening is, is, is given uh, over Israel, and it's because of that partial hardening that then the gospel goes to the Gentiles, and it is that gospel that goes to the Gentiles that begins to save the nations. All the while, Israel is under the judicial partial hardening of God. Now, that's the first part. Second part is this. Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. First part, partial hardening has happened on is, uh, to Israel. Second part, that partial hardening continues until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So in other words, it's the salvation of the Gentiles that occurs and then also precedes the salvation of Israel. Now, there is, there is this Old Testament pattern that's seen in the New Testament, right? So Romans 1.16, not ashamed of the power of God, or I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God into salvation, what? To the Jew first and then to the Greek, okay? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, okay? So, the pattern preaching the gospel was to the Jew first and then to the Greek, the Gentile. But what happens is what what is a priority, okay? 
in terms of proclaiming the gospel, ends up experiencing a reversal in salvation history. So, in other words, yes, the gospel goes to the Jew first, but the reality is, is that few Jews are actually saved, but as a result of the only few Jews being saved, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of Gentiles are saved. So in other words, there's a reversal in salvation so that in a sense you could argue this. Salvation in mass comes to the Gentiles first and then to the Jews. And so Greg Beal, in his book on um, hidden but now revealed, deals with mystery. He says this, Romans fully endorses Jew first, then Gentile pattern of Old Testament, while Romans 11 reflects on the notion that during the majority of the church age, most believers will be Gentiles along with a remnant of Jews being saved at the same time. Paul interprets this reality to mean that God has planned that the greater influx of Gentile believers will spark a remnant of Jewish believers also to come to faith at the end of the age. So, first part of the mystery, partial hardening on Israel. Second part of the mystery, that that hardening stays in place until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So, to think of the Um, the olive tree imagery, the idea is until all of the unnatural olive branches have been grafted in. Once all of them are grafted in, then something else happens. That's the second part of the mystery. Beale makes a great case that, that these truths are embedded in Deuteronomy 27 to 32, but of course we're part of the mystery now revealed. So there's the third part of the mystery. And thus, or so, all Israel will be saved. All right? First part of the mystery, partial hardening on Israel. Second part of the mystery, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Third part of the mystery, and then, or thus, all Israel will be saved. This is the key text, but it's important to see that it is the, in a sense, conclusion of the mystery. It's the last part of the mystery. All Israel will eventually be saved. Now, that brings us to what is Paul actually saying here. Now, just a quick note. In our our day and age, it is important to understand this, okay? Ever since the Holocaust... It has become more and more popular to believe that Jewish people can be or are saved apart from Jesus. Okay? And you could see why, right? You could see why. Nearly 2,000 years of anti Semitism, the Holocaust comes. Um, absolutely horrific, and, um, and, and you have to understand that the, the history of, of Christianity and Judaism has been a strained one, and often it, at, in, at times 
in part because of anti-Semitism that has existed inside of the church. So, for instance, it was only until the 1960s that the Roman Catholic Church stopped saying that Jews were guilty of killing God. Okay? Right? So, so you could imagine, so after the Holocaust, um, in, in fact, even in scholarly circles, there began to be a theory that has been proposed, and that is that there's actually two covenants. Okay? Uh, one covenant is the new covenant that we would identify as the new covenant where Gentiles are saved by faith in Jesus. But then there's another covenant and that is where, where Jews are saved uh, by Torah. Okay. By the way, this is not, this is not a minority view. There are, there are serious biblical scholars who have argued this and they've argued it in a sense because of sensitivity to Jewish people, especially since the Holocaust. But here's, here's, the, here's the truth of it and that is that we have to understand that nobody's ever saved apart from Jesus. Okay? There are not just scholars who think that Jews are saved by Judaism or by Torah or by virtue of being ethnic Jews, popular preachers will argue the same thing, especially those that follow blood moons. Now, there's nothing in the book of Romans, let alone the rest of the New Testament, that would even remotely suggest that Jewish people are saved apart from Jesus. To the contrary, faith alone in Christ alone is the requirement for both Jew and Gentile. Let me say something else about this. We, of course, want to be sensitive to anti-Semitism. We, of course, want to be sensitive to, to Jewish people, but at the end of the day, it is unloving to tell them they don't need Jesus in order to be right with God. Okay. The most loving thing that we can do for anybody, Jew or Gentile, is tell them that they need to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. And there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus. And let me just, let me just encourage you, saints, in the midst of, of, of multiculturalism and in the midst of, of the influx of world religions so that we actually are, we, we know people in the orbit of our own lives who belong to different world religions in a way that, that may not have even been true back in the 50s or 60s or even 70s, right? So that multiculturalism has expanded tremendously in our day. And here's the thing, there will be constant pressure on us to actually bend and to say, well, as long as they're sincere or, or all roads lead to God or, um, or you know, and by the way, this, that was the position of C.S. Lewis. Sorry to burst your bubble. Okay? Believed in salvation by sincerity. Okay? Now, that doesn't take away from his brilliance as a novelist and all of that, but let's stand firm in a day when it is profoundly 
politically incorrect to say there's only one way to God. Let's stand firm in a day when people want to say that all religions, all faith is is created equal. Our answer is no, it's not. Until your Savior can claim not only to be God in human flesh, but die on the cross for our sins and then be raised up from the dead. We don't have anything to talk about. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, all Israel? So, there's been three main views through church history, and I'm going to give the three to you very quickly, and then I'm going to go through each one And then I'm going to tell you, you thought I was going to say which one is right. I'm going to say the one that I find most persuasive, hence the one that is right. No. Now, just teasing. So first, the first view of who is all Israel would be the idea that all Israel is spiritual Israel. And it's made up of both Jews and Gentiles. All right. So. The, uh, in a sense, the elect of God from Jew and Gentile. Then there's all elect Israel. Okay? And this would be the view that would see an ethnic remnant that's saved. Okay? So, so Jewish ethnic remnant. All right? So you have spiritual Israel, you have all elect Israel, ethnic remnant, and then you have all ethnic Israel and this would be the ethnic majority view, okay? That is not all Israel in the sense of every single Jew that's ever lived, but the idea of, of the vast majority at some determined time, there would be salvation. Now, none of these views are heretical, all right? So, is there room to differ among God's people? And the answer is yes. All right? So let's take a look at these. First, we're going to look at spiritual Israel, Jew and Gentile. So when does the salvation of all Israel begin? And that is uh, the salvation of all Israel, i.e. the elect Jews and Gentiles, begins at Christ's first coming. Now what this view does is it actually rightly affirms that Gentiles belong to the Israel of God. It rightly affirms that. You can't read Paul and um, read passages that deal with um, true circumcision. So the true Jew is the one who has been circumcised by the Spirit because true circumcision is of the heart. Okay, so, so Paul, wrote, this is Romans 2, 28, 29, would actually identify Gentiles who have been born again, circumcised of heart, as being true Jews. He says the same thing in Philippians 3.3. He says, beware of dogs, beware of the mutilation, the false circumcision. We are the true circumcision who worship Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. Right? So true Jew, Romans 2, 28, 29. True circumcision, Philippians 3, 3. Uh, Paul argues in a sense in Romans or Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 to 9, and then 28 to 29. Who, who are the children of Abraham? The children are, of Abraham are those who have the faith of Abraham. 
So there's a sense in which uh, Gentiles actually are brought in to be the children of Abraham. How can that be? Because Jesus Christ, Galatians 3.16, is the seed of Abraham. And if you are in union with the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, then you are the seed of Abraham. Okay? You're the children of promise. And so, so the idea that Gentiles are, are brought into the Israel of God is, I think, abundantly clear. We saw this in Romans chapter 9, verse 23. It says, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us... Whom he has called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles, as he says also in Hosea. So Paul takes this passage from Hosea, applies it to the Gentiles. I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And so, is there a lot of evidence that, that all Israel could be the elect that are made up of Jew and Gentile throughout uh, the age? And the answer is yes. And it's true that there's a spiritual Israel. But here's the problem. Such a view in Romans 11 seems to minimize, at best, minimize the distinction between Jew and Gentile and salvation history. In other words, to simply get to the point where you say, um, all Israel shall be saved, that is um, the, uh, the Israel of God, the elect of God of both Jew and Gentile, it is in a sense to sort of ignore Paul's argument of that ricocheting grace of back and forth between Gentile, Jew, back to Gentile, back to Jew. And so, one more thing, just uh, another reason why I don't think this can be true, look at verse 25. Don't want you to be Ignorant brethren of this mystery, so you won't be wise in your own estimation. A partial hardening has happened to who? Israel. Until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. So is there, is there a distinction in that verse between Israel and the Gentiles? The answer is of course. And so all Israel will be saved. So you know what you have to do with the spiritual Israel view is you have to change the meaning of Israel that received the partial hardening to all Israel who will be saved, right? So they can't refer to the same people. Does that make sense? Do you see that? Okay. Does that make sense? Okay. Does that make sense? Okay. In other words, partial hardening comes on Israel, and then you turn around and say all Israel will be saved. That Israel has to be different than the partial hardening Israel, right? Which just seems actually unlikely to me. Okay, so the next view is all elect Israel, and this is the idea of the remnant. Okay? And so the salvation of the remnant begins, well, at the beginning of the Christian history, the beginning of Christ's first coming. Now, the strength of this idea is that it emphasizes properly ethnic Israel. Okay? It emphasizes properly ethnic Jewish people, and the other strength 
of this view is that it capitalizes on Paul's very first argument in Romans 11. Remember, Paul's argument went like this. Has God rejected his people whom he has foreknown? May it never be. And then what is his, what is his argument for may it never be? I too am an Israelite, tribe of Benjamin, right? And then to Paul, then Paul gives exhibit B, which is even in Elijah's day, God said there were 7,000 who had not bowed the knee. So here's the argument. God has not rejected his people because he has an elect remnant of Jewish believers, all right? And then Paul's point is, go back to Elijah's day. He's always had a remnant of Jewish believers. There's always been a remnant. So this view ends up saying that, that what Romans 11 is arguing is this. God's always had a a remnant. He's always had a remnant. He will always have a remnant. And it will be in this way that all Israel, the elect remnant, will be saved. Okay? Now, I want to say that this view has actually a lot that that's going for it. I mean, for instance, the main strength is that this is how Paul actually starts his argument. The question is, is it how, is it how Paul sustains his argument? And I would argue, no. So you have to understand that this view, the elect ethnic remnant view, doesn't make enough out of the much more than arguments of 11 to 15. All right? Okay? Did you need more coffee this morning? Or are we good? I feel like I'm in labor here. Okay? So, this view has a lot to commend it. But I think that once Paul hits verse 11, the argument actually, the argument doesn't shift. The argument actually enlarges the picture of Israel's future hope. In other words, there's something bigger than the salvation of the remnant in Paul's view. So just just humor me for a second, as if you already aren't. So this, this view would basically say this. Um, so God hasn't rejected his people because he's always had a, a, a remnant of ethnic Jewish people who believe. Okay? Paul's an example. 7,000 haven't bowed the knee to Baal are an example. And so what's happened is that um, those branches that were broken off, not all those branches were broken off. There were some branches that stayed in the olive tree. And, and God's always had branches in the olive tree, and he always will have branches in the olive tree, okay? And in that way, he's going to bring all of his ethnic remnant home, okay? Now, I totally agree with Tom Schreiner when he says, if that was the case, Paul's argument 
in 25 and 26 would be astonishingly anticlimactic. <laughs> right? You see what I mean? So, in other words, if it's just he's had a remnant, he has a remnant, he will have a remnant, and that's the way he's going to save the remnant, what's the mystery? <laughs> right? What, what's, what's the much more then? What is, what is the, what will their fulfillment be but life from the dead? So that brings us to the third, third view, and that is all ethnic Israel, which refers to an ethnic majority, all right? So, so understand, the first view, Jew-Gentile, uh, spiritual Israel, when does their salvation begin? Their salvation begins with the first advent of Jesus. Um, ethnic Jewish argument, when does their salvation begin? Their salvation begins with the first advent of Jesus, all right? This view, though, their salvation, the salvation of the ethnic majority, actually begins sometime at the end, but before Jesus returns, all right? So, let me just tell you, you should get really, really excited about this, because this is really, really awesome, all right? So, I'm going to be looking for, for signs of awesomeness on your faces, okay? Yeah, <laughs> keep it up, Michaela, that was good. All right, now, so, the, the strength of this view, first of all, is that it stays focused on ethnic Israel, right? So, I just want to say that when you read Romans 11... And Paul is unfolding this in salvation history, and you have this Jew-Gentile interplay. It seems very hard to me to move away from um, an ethnic idea of Israel to some sort of um, generic sense of Jew-Gentile, right? In other words, it is actually the place of Israel in God's saving purposes that Paul has in view. And so this view stays focused on ethnic Israel. So John Murray, who holds to this view, says it refers to the mass of Israel in contrast with the remnant. So Murray says, yeah, there's been a remnant, and that remnant has been during what? until the fullness of the Gentiles, but once the fullness of the Gentiles is complete, then there is a mass remnant that, or, or, or mass salvation that actually overwhelms the remnant in a sense. So the view also has the strength of taking into account the salvation history twists and turns of Romans 11, 11 to 32. In other words, it's through Israel's rejection that what happens? Salvation comes to the Gentiles. And it is as salvation comes to the Gentiles that Paul actually says, I magnify my ministry to provoke them to jealousy so that some of them might be saved during this remnant period. But then, once the fullness of Gentile salvation happens, then all Israel ends up being saved. And so you have this, um, in, the, in a sense, this, this back and forth in Romans 11 that, in a sense, Israel's rejection is the Gentiles' um, uh, acceptance and, and Israel's um, abandonment of the purpose of God is actually the Gentiles' reconciliation, right? And so you have this, and so then Paul says, once that's done, 
man, something big is going to happen. So then this would read, not, and thus in this way all Israel is saved, but it would read in a sense, and so, as a consequence, all Israel will be saved. So, the argument then could be that partial hardening ends when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And hence, all Israel will be saved. Now, I think that's right. That's what persuades me. I was persuaded of the second view for, for years and years. I'm not anymore. I think Romans 11 says something bigger. And so there's a partial hardening of Israel. Even right now to this day. And that partial hardening is going to remain until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And the fullness of Gentiles is the full number of Gentiles who are saved in Jesus Christ. Or to go back to the olive tree, it is, it is the full number of Gentile branches that get engrafted into the olive tree. And so then what happens when the partial hardening comes to an end? Notice Notice, little tiny word. I have it circled in red in my Bible in verse 25. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That little word until designates a termination point. A happens until B happens. Or B will happen when A no longer happens. And so here's this beautiful picture of right now in this present age, what is God doing? God is moving among the nations, bringing Gentiles in to this olive tree. And so this is why Paul labored so hard among the Gentiles. Think about it. He has a sanctified ulterior motive. The more I work among the Gentiles, the more I preach the gospel to the Gentiles, the more Gentiles are grafted into the olive tree. Man, if I could be a part of actually getting the gospel to Spain, got to get the gospel to Spain. I want to build where nobody else has actually built a foundation. I got to get the gospel to the Gentiles because when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, boom, then all Israel is going to be saved. And that's what I'm living for. Wow. Okay. So, how are they going to be saved, and when are they going to be saved? We'll talk about next week. (laughs) I just want to say there's something about this passage that I find unbelievably encouraging. You see, the, the world, the world says that we live in a in a post Christian society. You've heard that phrase, right? We live in a post-Christian society. The world has actually said that the church is on life support. Church is dying. Now, I want to say that when the world's doing the statistics, they, they don't know how to count. All right? Because what is dying are mainline Protestant denominations, And you know what I say? Farewell. 
Send, send me the funeral notice. I'll be happy to attend and throw dirt on your grave. Okay? Why? Because mainline Protestant denominations have done nothing but obscure the truth of the gospel. Okay? So, good riddance. And so the world looks and they go, look at that. Church attendance is way down. People are running from the Southern Baptist Convention. And, and by the way, not only is the church dying, but science and technology have basically rendered the Christian faith irrelevant. Okay. That's what we hear. Is that not what we hear? But mark it. God is doing a mighty work among the nations. Now, it's true that the light of the gospel in the West, that is UK, America, Canada, duh, right, is, may actually be going out. Okay? I, I, I grant that that might be happening, but what is not happening is the light is not going out in the rest of the world. Now, can God revive that light and cause it to burn brightly in the West again? And the answer is absolutely he can. That's why we need to have actually a theology of revival and awakening because it is only through revival and awakening that God can actually bring that light back to burn like it once did. But whether or not he ever does it, I don't know. But regardless, the gospel of the kingdom is doing what? It's actually penetrating the nations. The light of Christ is shining in the darkness. And the kingdom of darkness is no match for the kingdom of God's son. So, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party can't stop the church. Amen. You understand that? Okay? Islamic governments can't stop the spread of the gospel. And where is the gospel spreading most today? In places where it shouldn't be. Why? Because Jesus, who is the king of the nations, is defying the tin pot dictators of this world and is causing his kingdom to advance in a way that's absolutely glorious. You know, so, so in, the, in the 40s, they kick the missionaries out of China. And, um, and of course, everybody, everybody is, is shocked. Oh my goodness, what's going to happen now to to Christianity in China. Americans have to go home. <laughs> the door gets opened back up and missionaries start to go in and they start to realize that during this time and even during the Cultural Revolution, the church, the underground church was absolutely exploding because Jesus says, I will build my church. So, the gospel spreading among the nations. You go to Africa, you go to China, you go to places that are, that are outside of the West, and you see that the gospel is actually coming about in power and glory, and people are being converted. And so, so here's the thing. 
the fullness of the Gentiles will be brought in. The gospel will not fail. And when the fullness of the Gentiles is finally brought in, then the glorious gospel of Jesus will sweep through the Jewish populations of this earth. And there will no longer be just a few here or a few there, but multitudes will come to faith in Jesus as their Messiah. I hope, I hope the very idea of the sons and the daughters of Abraham according to the flesh bowing the knee to King Jesus and being grafted back in thrills your soul. So in the late 1730s, early 1740s, a young Scottish minister by the name of Robert Murray McShane excelled in Hebrew in seminary, and he had a view of Romans 11 like this. By the way, most, most Scottish theologians actually did. And he went on a trip to what was then called Palestine, To do what? To go and preach Jesus to Jewish people who were there in the 1830s, 1840s. He understood the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so, brothers and sisters, may our hearts be stirred with world missions. May our hearts be stirred for the cause of Christ the King, to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles, so that the mystery of salvation to the Gentile first and then to the Jew may finally be accomplished to the glory of Jesus. So I was reading a sermon, really super long sermon, didn't finish it, by Thomas Boston this morning, another Scots from the 1740s, and he says, he says this, the table, the table is all set, and Gentiles have been streaming to that table. Let's make sure we get all of the nations to that table so that then... The Jews can be brought in, take their place, and we can all feast together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we have no idea how much longer this old world is going to last. We have no idea what you're doing. But we thank you that you're in control. 
and we pray for the cause of Christ. That it would advance among the nations and that the fullness of the Gentiles would come in. And then we pray all Israel would be saved. Father, we pray that we wouldn't be wise in our own estimation. We'd be humble because of grace. What do we have that we didn't first receive? And if we received it as a gift, why do we boast as if we didn't? Keep us humble, Lord, and stir our hearts with a vision for the glory of Christ in world missions. Father, one of these days, all of this will have come to pass. And we pray that when it does, we will be seated at the table. That we'd be standing on the right side. That we would be attached to the Lord Jesus at the hip. And so we ask, Father, for you to keep us focused and to keep us humble. In Christ's name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.